0: 2,000 years ago, God came to earth, and the remarkable thing about it is that He came in the form of a baby, the same God who spoke the universe into existence, the same God who was so holy that the mountains trembled, the same God who the people had to go through a high priest, and that only once a year through the holy of holies, through the sacrifice of uh, animals. This God came to earth. But what's so amazing about it is that he did it without ceremony and without pomp. I recently read that when uh, the Queen of England visits a country, it costs about $20 million for even a short visit. She would take with her about uh, 4,000 pounds of luggage, two outfits for any occasion, uh, an outfit for mourning in case where she's staying, somebody important dies, and of course all of her security and all of her valet. When Jesus came to earth, and note that he didn't become God, he was God. For all of eternity past, the Spirit didn't enter some man and make him God, as a false teaching is circulating these days. Even in big name televangelist preachers will say that Jesus became God. Jesus has always been God. From before the beginning of time, for eternity past, this God came to earth without ceremony, without pomp, in a manger. Why? Because when the shepherds rushed to see the King of Kings that was born in a manger, they were amazed. Not just at how innocent and how pure that God is, but they were amazed, they were taken back at how humble God is, at how approachable God is, who's intimidated by a baby. And this is why God decided to come and be born in a manger and live among us so that he could say, come unto me all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give rest for your souls. Without ceremony and without pomp, Jesus came. Why? To be approachable. Why? Because Jesus needed nothing of this world to endorse his greatness. When kings and dignitaries visit other countries, they require pomp and ceremony by those countries to endorse their greatness. Jesus needed nothing of this world to endorse his greatness. He simply was great, intrinsically great. And anything he touched became great as well. He touched the manger, and it became a palace as the shepherds worshipped. It his first miracle at the wedding in Cana, Jesus touched wine. He touched water, and he turned it into wine. This is his pattern throughout his three-year public ministry. Anything he touched became equally as beautiful, equally as great. Jesus touched the lepers and they were clean, and they were whole. They were smooth as babies. Jesus touched the blind, and they could see. Jesus touched the lame, and they could walk. Jesus touched sinners, and they were cleansed. Jesus touched 12 ragamuffins, and turned them into to world-changing apostles. Jesus touched a, a, a donkey on the road to Jerusalem, and He turned it into a presidential motorcade as everybody worshipped Him. Jesus touched... Three nails and two pieces of wood, and he turned it into the means of salvation for the entire world. And this is what I'm still trying to wrap my mind around Jesus touched me. My life is the manger that's been transformed into a palace my soul is the water that has been made wine my sins are the leprous wounds that have been cleansed and made whole I am the ragamuffin that's been assigned to transform the world and if Christ has touched you then you are also priceless in heaven and you are purposeful on this earth when I was a kid, uh, there was a song that somebody on the worship team sang, and I would always go up to them and I would say, sing this song, sing that song again. And, and I, as a kid, I liked the tune, but, but the words would wash over me and it absorbed into me and I would listen to these words so attentively. It was from a poem that was taken from a lady named Myra Banks. Uh, she wrote the poem about a hundred years ago, and it was about an auction. And the poem goes something like this. Well, it was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it was hardly worth its while. To waste much time on this old violin, but he held it up with a smile. It sure ain't much, but it's all we got left, so I guess we ought to sell it too. One, give me one dollar, who'll make it two? Well, nobody budged. Nobody wanted this old violin. But then from the back of the crowd came a gray-haired man, and he stepped forward, and he... Picked up the violin and he tightened up some strings and he picked up the bow and he played out a melody pure and sweet, sweet as the angels sing. And then the music stopped and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What is my bid on this old violin? And he held it up with the bow. One, give me 1,000. Who'll make it two? 2,000. Who'll make it three? 3,000 twice. That's a good price. Who's got a bid for me? And the people called out what made the change. We don't understand. And the auctioneer stopped and he said with a smile, it was the touch of the master's hand. And though you may feel broken and battered and cast away and worthless, if you've been touched by Christ, He's cleansed you of your sins, He's made you His own righteousness, you are priceless on heaven, you are purposeful on earth, and He wants to play out a melody through you that this world is dying to hear. It's simply the melody from a soul that dares to believe they are loved by God, they are cleansed by God, and it's a melody that loves people for God. Father, I pray that in Jesus' name, you would help us to rediscover this Christ in Christmas. A Christ who loves the world, a Christ who loves me, and a a Christ who wants to love the world through me. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the Christ in Christmas, relishing in the truth that he has touched us, that he's transformed us, and in a spirit of love, communicating that truth to everyone, everywhere. When I was a kid, uh, I specifically remember a, uh, a birthday party, and, and it was my birthday, and we had several kids over, and you can ask my mom about this, and uh, the cake was being sliced up and given to everybody, and then when, when it uh, came time to give me a cake, there was no more cake. <laughs> they had given it to all the guests, but I didn't get any. And how often we treat Jesus like this at Christmas time, the the season that we honor His birth, we give Him the leftovers, and oftentimes there's nothing left to give, and we're to live life not giving Jesus a piece of the cake, but giving them the whole cake. We're to live by giving Jesus our whole life, not just Easter, not just Christmas, every morning, every day, our whole heart. This is what Jesus commands, this is what Jesus gives us the capacity to give Him, to love Him, and this is what the world is dying for. If you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 2. Father, help us in Jesus' name to love you like you want to be loved. Help us to love you like you've loved us. Help us to love one another and to love a lost world like you've loved us. This is a command that we can't do on our own. We we, we need your Spirit to help us love you and to help us love one another and even to love ourselves the way that you love us us in Jesus name I pray that you would help us through your spirit to love as we are commanded and as we are empowered in Jesus name amen I believe that we've lost the Christ in Christmas in three specific places and let me just ask you to begin with have you lost Jesus amidst uh, religious activity And I'm going to give you three vignettes of uh, three places in Scripture that people lost Jesus. And one is of all places amidst religious activity. I'll just summarize Second Kings chapter twenty-two. But basically, there was a young, uh, there was a young king, Josiah. Uh, he was eight years old when he was anointed king. He was a good king, and he led a revival amongst in, in, in the midst of his kingdom. And when Josiah was was eighteen years of age, he said, uh, "Go to the temple." He commanded his people to go to the temple where worship takes place, and to and to do a few things. So they went there, and and they were going to carry out the king's orders. And something tragic happened. At first you think it's good, but in reality it's tragic. When they were carrying out the king's orders in the temple, they found the book of the law. Now on one hand it's, it's great, they found the word of God, but on another hand it's tragic. They lost the word of God. And when they found the Word of God, they they dusted it off. They're like, I remember this. I've heard about this. And right there in the temple, they opened it up and they read from it. And you want to know what they did? They took it to this young 18-year-old king and they said, Josiah, we carried out your commands and while we were rummaging through the temple, look, look what we found. Josiah said, the Word, Read, read it. And they read it, and you want to know what Josiah did? He stood up and he ripped his clothes. And he said, how many years have our people been living in blindness and darkness and ignorance? Because we've been ignorant to what the Word of God says. I wonder if you've lost the Word of God amidst religious activity. The the temple practices were still being conducted. Uh, there, There were still guards at the temple. Religious activity was still taking place, but it was all without the Word of God being the centerpiece. I wonder if you've lost Jesus amongst religious activity. The second vignette is in the New Testament. It's a well-known story. Jesus was just a young boy. He was 12 years of age. Mary and Joseph uh, went in to, uh, to Jerusalem and they were, were fulfilling religious responsibilities and they were leaving and back, back in those days families traveled in caravans and it was a very familial thing. You know, kids were with this family and other kids were with this family and, and it was just a big kind of parade and they were traveling and Mary and Joseph left in Jerusalem and after after three days, they finally found Jesus. How many, how many hours and days went by and they were he was lost? They began looking for him. They finally found him. I wonder if you've lost Jesus amidst all the family commotion of Christmas, all the family commotion and the activities of just life. I wonder if you uh, have been conducting family life and realized that Jesus is not even the centerpiece. He's not even the focus. I wonder if if you've been conducting your relationships and even your marriage without, of all things, praying together as a couple and as a family. How many days have you let come and go without kneeling at the bedside of your kids and just praying? How many nights have come and gone and you haven't prayed with your spouses? How many weekends come and go and, and Christ isn't the centerpiece? I wonder if you've lost Jesus amidst the political frenzy that we find ourselves in Jesus was standing before Pilate and and they get involved in this conversation and Jesus says that he is the truth and Pilate says what is the truth and this governor this Roman governor over the Judean province lost sight of truth and how often do we do that I mean, the Republicans have a version of Jesus, the Democrats have a version of Jesus, Fox News has a version, Uh, CNN has a version, Uh, New York has a version, the South has a version. Who is Jesus? We've lost Jesus amongst this political frenzy. But this morning, my prayer is that we find the real Jesus. And let's begin looking for the real Jesus. and. In a place that maybe we haven't thought to look for Him in a while, and let's begin. One, finding Jesus in His historical context, and that brings us to our text verse, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, remember that name, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the King of the Jews? Uh, Many think that these Magi were from uh, Babylon, uh, which is modern-day Iraq. It's about 300 miles from uh, where Jesus is. Uh, They—many think that, well, perhaps they studied under Daniel— uh, the prophet Daniel. I mean, Daniel would have been uh, deceased for five centuries now, but, but they were students of his teachings, of his writings, of his prophecies. And so that's why these wise men, and they were certainly wise. We don't know that they were three. They were three gifts, so people think, well, perhaps they were three wise men. We don't know that they were riding donkeys. Some scholars say, well, they were probably riding Arabian horses, but they were certainly wise. They were probably from Babylon. It was about a 300-mile journey. They were probably riding Arabian horses, and... They were probably students of the Hebrew prophecies of Daniel. And so they're asking, where is the one who has been born, the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod, who is King Herod? Well, let's just put this in a quick context. For example, if the United States goes into a country, invades a country, for whatever reason, we like to set up capitalism and and voting booths, and the United States as policy wants to make sure that whoever the president of that nation is, is somebody who's going to champion democracy, right? And so in a sense, that president could be resented by the people of their, uh, of the indigenous culture and indigenous country because they'll be seen as just sort of a puppet of the United States. And in the same way, the United States has largely been compared to Rome in many different ways, but, but Rome was very imperialistic and when they would conquer a people as they conquered Judea, the the Hebrew area where Jesus grew up, they would, they would put a king. Now this king was really, it was nothing more than a puppet at the end of Rome. Rome's leash, and the king would govern to hopefully pacify and satisfy the people, but the real authority came from Rome, which is why there was also a Roman governor of that particular vicinity. So when King Herod, King Herod was a Jew, but he was a Roman um, authorized king of Judea. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Why would he have been disturbed? Well, many historians and secular historians say that King Herod had a great deal of of emotional distress. There's no doubt about that historically. He went from being completely tyrannical to killing people who threatened his throne. And then after he would kill somebody, he'd go into huge states of depression. And then after a while, he would come out of these states of depression by building, 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 building. And then he would receive a threat to his throne, kill them, go into more depression, come out of that depression by building. He was crazy. And when he heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Well, it's kind of like if the, the the saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Well, in the same way, if King Herod's not happy, ain't nobody happy. So, Flavius Josephus records Herod's brutalities in his uh, writings, Antiquities. Let's just get a snapshot of why Herod would have been disturbed, and why all of Judea would have been disturbed with Herod, because if Herod's not happy, ain't nobody going to be happy. Herod was elected king of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. in Rome. Herod was given a Roman army to solidify his kingdom upon his return to Jerusalem. Herod eliminated a rival to his throne. That was his first order of business. They had him strangled. In 37 B.D., Herod killed 45 leading men of that particular political party. In 30 B.C., Herod had the elderly John strangled over alleged plot to overthrow him. In 35 B.C., Herod's men drowned his brother-in-law. How would you like to have been related to Herod? He was 18 years old and the high priest when he was drowned because Herod was afraid the Romans would have favored his brother-in-law as ruler of Judea rather than him. In 28 B.C., Herod had his mother-in-law, Alexandra, executed. In 29 B.C., Herod had his second wife, Miriam, killed. Herod had an internal spy network and killed people suspected of revolt. Herod had all three of his sons killed. In 7 BC, Herod had 300 military leaders executed. In 7 BC, Herod had his, a number of Pharisees killed who predicted to his younger brother's wife that his throne would be taken from him by God and then the throne would go to his brother. So he killed all of the Pharisees and everyone in his family associated with that. So let's pick up in the Gospel readings in Matthew chapter 2. When these wise men came, probably from Iraq, and were asking, where is the king who's been born of the Jews? So Herod heard it, and can you imagine in this context, he was distressed. And all of Judea and all of Jerusalem with him. So we pick up in verse 7. Then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now we know that's disingenuous to say the least and so the wise men they wised up and they said okay that's not going to happen so they went and they worshipped Jesus and they departed another way and then we come to verse 16 then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and watch this how tragic he said and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years of age or under according to the time that he would ascertained from the wise men Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. How tragic was that? This is the era in which Christ was born. And we tend to dilute this era and we see it in cold, monotone, almost cartoonish terms, don't we? Like, do you remember the flannel graph boards in Sunday school when we were growing up and you see the little two-dimensional or one-dimensional cartoonish picture of Jesus? It was nothing like that. The era in which Jesus was born was very hostile. It was very political. It was very corrupt. It was very brutal. In fact, as I've mentioned this to you before, but about uh, actually about the time of Christ, there's something that Josephus records that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, over the Judean territory did. Uh, The Romans decided to build uh, an aqueduct of water going into Jerusalem. The Jews didn't like, for whatever reason, how the Romans went about it, so they began protesting. Tens of thousands of Jews were protesting this, Josephus writes about. Josephus knew that the protest was going to take place So he had several of his soldiers This is what Flavius Josephus records He had several of his soldiers uh, Dressed as common people with robes And that sort of thing And under their robes were knives They were daggers And then when Pontius Pilate gets up And the protests begin There were hundreds of his soldiers Dispersed throughout the crowd And immediately began stabbing all the protesters This is the culture in which Jesus was born it was brutal, it was political, it was corrupt, it was violent. In fact, about 35 years after Jesus died was the, was the end of Israel for about 2,000 years. Watch how brutal this culture was. Having surrounded the city Jerusalem, this is what Josephus writes, with his wall and garrisoned the forts. So the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and they just starved him out. The Jews, unable to leave the city, were deprived of all hope of survival. The famine became more intense and devoured whole houses and families. The roofs were covered with men and babies too weak to stand. The streets full of old men and already dead. Young men and boys, swollen with hunger, haunted the squares like ghosts. For many, while burying others, fell dead themselves." As they were burying people, they fell dead, and Josephus writes this as as an eyewitness as he was traveling with Rome during this siege. And many set out for their graves before their hours struck. The temple hill, Herod's great temple that he built, enveloped in flames from top to bottom, appeared to be boiling up from its very roots. Yet the sea of flame was nothing to the ocean of blood, or the companies of killers to the armies of killed. Nowhere, the, nowhere could the ground be seen, the corpses. You couldn't see the ground because of all the corpses of Jews. And the soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies so they could chase those who were still living. All the prisoners taken from beginning to end of the war totaled 97,000. Those who perished in the long siege, 1,100,000. Amidst this context, enter Jesus. The initial people who followed Jesus were not your seminary type of intellectuals they were not your meek type of pastors they were not your scholarly type of priests they were rough around the edges they had no intention of teaching a sunday school class they were rough they were uneducated they were zealots they were patriots and they wanted to see rome kicked out of israel And the Christmas story brought fear to some because they thought, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know that we're ready for war with Rome. It brought hope to others because they thought, finally, the Messiah is going to be born. Israel will finally be free. Our king is not going to be some puppet at the end of Rome's leash, and Israel will be free of Rome. So, what does this revolutionary look like? The Messiah, we have to understand about Jesus. Jesus. He was a revolutionary, and those who followed him were signing up, not not for a church, not for religious purposes. They were signing up to be part of a revolution. They were patriots. So the crowds heard that this could be the Messiah, this could be the King, and Jesus testified of his divine authority and his uniqueness by his power. His power was absolutely otherworldly. That was undeniable. But what was also undeniable were the things that came out of his mouth were equally as otherworldly. When Jesus calmed the storms, the disciples patted themselves on the back for the good decision they made to follow Jesus. But when he began opening his mouth, they questioned their discernment and they wondered if this could really be the Messiah. Jesus would stand in front of crowds and say things like this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And they looked at each other and said, meek? Did we hear that correctly? The meek? I mean, it's like, will Rome really just just hand Israel back to us on a silver platter because we are meek? And they would pull Jesus aside and try to enlighten him and try to correct him and try to remind him of the reality in which he lived. And he would go on to say, if a soldier, yes, a Roman soldier, forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it too. And they said, what? And these guys would talk about calling fire down from heaven, and Jesus' followers were were fiercely competitive and ambitious, and were always challenging one another for the greatest position when Christ entered His kingdom, and they thought that it would be a worldly kingdom. They imagined that Jesus would stand up with some battle cry reminiscent of David and say to Rome like, like David said to Goliath, prepared to die, or say to Pharaoh, like like or say to Rome like Moses said to Pharaoh, Let my people go. But Jesus instead would stand up and say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And they would look at one another and say, what world is he living in? And Jesus would just continue to press in with his teachings. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your coat, give him your shirt. Jesus would lay teachings like this down and the disciples would lean in and try to grasp them, but they just couldn't. It was too counterintuitive, and yet Jesus was relentless. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others how you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Jesus not only challenged the political zealots, he also challenged the religious elite, and he superseded all of their religious and moral authority from their good works, and he opened the doors of his kingdom to sinners. Not religious people, but sinners. And he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus not only taught this love, Jesus lived this quality of love. And when he was on the cross, he said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And let me just ask you, are you trying to follow a cultural Jesus? Or are you following the historical, biblical, revolutionary Jesus? Isn't it so easy to get caught up in modern politics? Let me remind you, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Give to Caesar what Caesar is, give to God what is God's? I'm not saying we should be uh, uninvolved politically. Of course we should vote our conscience. But do people know you more for your religious convictions, or do they know you more for the love of Christ? Jesus was a force of love against the backdrop of hate, an instrument of life and a world of death, a beacon of hope and a sea of despair. Now we are to be the same. Do people know us? because of our political convictions because of our religious activity because of our theological convictions or do they know us because of the love of Christ that flows through us the love of Christ is counterintuitive and the love of Christ is never recognized where it's appropriate worldly speaking the love of Christ is only recognizable where it's counterintuitive and where it causes people to say, well, you just don't have any boundaries. Or, you know, that, you, you, you need to love, learn tough love. Or something of this nature. The love of Christ is only exemplified where it is counterintuitive and countercultural. I had the opportunity recently to, to apply the, the love of Christ. I was working on this very sermon and some of their, somebody texts me I think they, they might have been under the influence of something or another, but they were cursing me out upside and down. And I just responded something like, "I understand you're frustrated, but it is not OK for you to speak to me this way." And I thought, maybe I should just block this person." And I thought, "What am I just studying?" you know what, if I blocked that person it would be so justifiable it would be, it, would be, it would be perceived as being discerning, it would be perceived as being mature, of having boundaries of exercising tough love of not enabling but the love of Christ is counterintuitive and it's countercultural and so I called the brother and I was like man I'm sorry and I asked him to forgive me and, and I prayed with him and He cried, and you want to know what? He just needed the love of Jesus. That's all. There's a saying, hurting people hurt people. The people who are acting most hurtful, the people who are acting the most unlovable in your life, are the very people who need the love of Christ the most in your life. Somebody messaged me and said, hey, so-and-so-and-so-and-so, uh, this-and-this-and-this, and, this, and we need 35 bucks. And it was the kind of $35 that might not have been the most discerning appropriation of funds. But again, I just finished reading about Jesus saying, love those who, who, who seem to be unlovable, and give to those who you don't expect anything back. And, and I was convicted, and I just said, sure. <laughs> Let me ask you, where is love most needed in your life? Where is it most counterintuitive? Where is it most countercultural? That is where Christ is going to shine in your life. And perhaps you're in a relationship, perhaps you're in a marriage, perhaps you have kids. And look, I understand. I understand the, 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 the whole balance of enabling and all of these things. I get that. I get that. I've, I've been there, I understand. But it is never okay for them not to be convinced to the core of their being that you love them with the love of Christ. Where is the love of Christ most needed in your circle? To follow Jesus is to ignite this revolution of love. How do we do this? We can't do this on our own. So one. We have received the spirit of love. For God, when you became a Christian, He did not give you the spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Do you realize that Jesus for three years taught the disciples to love and they never got it? For the next 25 years, With the tongues of of angels, I could talk to you about love and you're still going to leave here with resentment, with animosity, with bitterness, with hatefulness, with defiance, championing your own rights and pride more than love. Why? Because we can't love like this in our own ability. Not even the followers of Jesus could love like they were commanded to love in their own ability. Jesus understood that. That's why he said, look, it's better for you that I'm crucified. It's better for you that I go away. Otherwise, i would never receive the helper. Who's the helper? It's the Holy Spirit. And the spirit that we receive is the spirit of love. Secondly, the spirit of love gives us the nature or gives us the capacity to love Jesus. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. A sheep doesn't have to go to sheep school to learn to be meek. A wolf doesn't have to go to wolf school to learn to be vicious. Why? Because it's in the sheep's nature to be meek, and it's in the wolf's nature to be vicious. And when we place our faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, and we receive a new nature, and this nature is one of counterintuitive, countercultural love. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And what God wants for us is to love people. All throughout Jesus' teachings, love your enemies, love God, love others. The entire Old Testament, Jesus said, can be summed up in one word, love. Love God and love others. And the night before Christ's crucifixion, He said, I give to you a new command. And I'm just now giving it to you because I'm just now going to model it for you. Love one another as I have loved you. And then He went to the cross and He paid the price for our sins. He forgave, he forgave the people who were executing him. And he said, now, love one another. I recently listened to Mother Teresa's Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech in 1979. They actually had to talk her into receiving this award. She was very humble. She spent 60 years of her life... Ministering to the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta, India. Sixty years of her life ministering to the uh, people in her society that were considered trash, literally thrown outside in the gutter to die. Mother Teresa, in her acceptance speech, the the only reason that she decided to to accept it is because it would draw attention to the poor of the world. And in, in her acceptance speech, she said, that she saw a man in an alley and his entire body was covered with maggots. She said the only place it was not covered with maggots was his face. And she she created a home for people to die with dignity and she had these nuns who enlisted into this service just share the mercy of Christ. They would give these dying people, uh, they would clean them and they would love them and they would pray for them and they would sing over them and they would hold them. And they would, they would just compassionately touch them. And so she brought this man in and they cleaned him. And Mother Teresa and the nuns were just loving this man. And Mother Teresa said, the man said, I've lived my entire life like an animal. But I will die like an angel. And isn't that the love of Christ? And that's the kind of love that we are commanded to give. Now, now this does not mean that we're just supposed to try to be nicer in what we do. It does not mean that we're supposed to try to be more polite when we go about our business. We don't try to do whatever we do more loving. What we do is love. And our ministries, our work, our vocations, our prayers, our words are vehicles to Love. We don't try to do things more loving. Love is the end game. Love is the purpose. And whatever we're about is simply a vehicle to love God and to love people. And we love God most when we are loving people. And we love Jesus the most when we are loving the most unlovable Jesus said, you saw me cold, hungry, and naked, and you didn't clothe me, feed me, and and they said, when? When did we see you? And he said, whatever you did or whatever you didn't do to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Our nature through the Holy Spirit is love. And this is how we love God, by loving people. And we love God most of all by loving the most unlovable. Unlovable. Listen to Mother Teresa's words. It was not enough to become a man. This is in her acceptance. speech. He died on the cross to show that greater love. And he died for you and for me, for the leper, and for that man dying of hunger. And that naked person lying on the street, not only of Calcutta, but of Africa and New York and London and Oslo. And insisted that we love one another as he loved each one of us. And we, we read in the Gospels very clearly, love as I have loved you, as I love you, as the Father has loved me, I love you. We too must to each other love one another until it hurts. It is not enough for us to say, I love God, but I, not, but I do not love my neighbor or my enemy. And so this is very important for us to realize that love to be true has to hurt. It hurt Jesus to love us. It hurt Him when He was on the cross. We have been created to love and be loved, and then He has become man to make it possible for us to love as He loved us by giving us the Holy Spirit and a new new nature. He makes Himself And let's remember this. Jesus makes himself the hungry one, the naked one, the homeless one, the sick one, the one in prison, the lonely one, the unwanted one. As he says, you did it unto me. Jesus loves us, but not without scars. And we cannot follow Jesus and love on his behalf without our own Scars. God has only one son who is sinless, but he has no sons or daughters without suffering and without scars. And the beautiful thing about scars is that it's a representation that our wounds have healed. And this is one of the most powerful testimonies in this world Do you remember doubting Thomas, said, I will not believe until I see the scars. And he saw the nail scars and the rib scar, and he believed. And there are some people who are not going to believe, who are not going to understand that Jesus still loves them. They're not going to understand that they still have hope until they see your scars, your wounds that have healed, and you just love them. And this is how we'll have a revolution. This is how we will ignite and inflame the revolution. I promise you, we are not going to win the world for Christ and transform the world and take back the culture of America by hurling all sorts of political opinions. And it's fine to have political opinions, but what will change the world is exactly how Jesus transformed the world, and that is through love, counterintuitive, countercultural love when it hurts, when we incur scars through the love, and when we love anyway, and when we love Love others by showing them our scars. And I just pray that every day you wake up, you would pray, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can love well. What does it look like to love well? It's very clear, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it holds no record of wrong, it does not envy, it does not boast, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, trusts all things, love never fails. May we make this prayer of St. Francis of Assisi our prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is error, the truth. Where there is doubt, the faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Would you stand with me please? Jesus said, this is how people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Are you recognized by the love of Christ? Are you at school, at home, at work, and at church? Are you recognized by the love of Christ? Or are you more recognized for your, again, your political affiliation, your soapbox, your your ministry, your passion, or even your spiritual gift? All of those things are useless. All of those things are nothing. The Apostle Paul said, if you offer your body as a martyr to the flames, but have not love it profits you nothing so again we don't try to do whatever we do more loving but whatever we do whatever we say it is a vehicle to love love is the end game love is the objective love is the purpose this is how we honor God and this is how we love God by loving one another Would you bow your heads? God is looking for someone through whom He can change the world. God is looking for someone through whom He can change your marriage. Somebody to step forward and break the frosty feelings of animosity and melt the the hostility cycle. God is looking for someone through whom he can create a revolution at school. God is looking for someone through whom he can create a revival in your family. But it's going to require somebody to step forward to incur some wounds in love with a counterintuitive, countercultural, Christ-like love. And so often we, we, we pray passionately, God use me, God change the world through me, I'm guilty of that. And in a sense it's, it's not wrong, it's just short-sighted. It's like saying, God let me get on first base instead of, God let me hit a grand slam and get to home plate. What we need to do is we need to cry out, God fill me so full of your Holy Spirit that I love Fill me so full of your Holy Spirit that everybody around them knows that you love them because they see your love in me. Fill me so full of your Holy Spirit that you use me to shine your love through the world. One of the reasons that my faith in Christ has been deepened so much is because Christ didn't change the world by giving some shallow five steps or five pillars of Christianity or some nonsense like this. Christ didn't change the world with some some, uh, temporal, short-sighted, one- or two-generation political agenda. He transformed the world by saying, the least of these come unto me, and I will love people through you. That is so otherworldly. That is so supernatural. That is so authentic. That is so holy, and that is so divine. And he's still looking for someone through whom he can love the world. And I just want to ask you to pour your heart out to God in this invitation and say, where there's resentment, God, melt my heart. Where there's misunderstanding, help me to understand. Where there's friction, where there's animosity, where there's despair, where there's doubt, Lord, help me to be your force of healing and love. Love people through me. So let's respond. Let's respond. Let's do this together. Take your outline out. Let's read this prayer of St. Francis of Assisi together. We don't often read corporate prayers. Um, If we're just saying words, it's useless. But if it comes from your heart, it is a powerful prayer. Okay, let's read it. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is error, the truth. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I might not seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, for it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. So let me dismiss you with a prayer, and let's praise Jesus. would you bow your heads with me? And if you're signing up this morning or re-enlisting to be part of this revolution of love, then just raise your hand high with your heads bowed. And I just want to pray that the Spirit is stirred within you to love counterintuitively, counterculturally. Father, you see these holy hands in Jesus' name. Empower everybody by your Spirit to love in an otherworldly, supernatural love that reminds the world of you. In Jesus' name, Amen.